Well, this morning, as we begin, let me just offer a uh, very warm and masculine Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And uh, today, I'm going to be um, giving you a sermon about fathers on Father's Day. And uh, before I do that, I, I just want to take a moment. I think it's helpful on days like today to, uh, to acknowledge that it's a difficult day for a lot of people. And uh, it's, a, it's a great day. It's a happy day. It's a, a day of remembrance. It's a day of, of thanksgiving. And, uh, and there's a lot to be thankful for that God has given us in fathers and your father, probably. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those days that just kind of bring a, a, a set of mixed emotions to it because some people just didn't have a great experience with their fathers or they don't have their father still around or any number of re- reasons. Perhaps they really want to be a father, but for a number of reasons can't be. So um, today, just as we start, as a word to you, if you're sitting there in that sort of position, that sort of situation, then I, I just have a, I would like to tell you that you're not alone and you're not forgotten today. I'm strongly persuaded that regardless of the experiences that we have, with fathers, that God wants us to see today a picture of biblical fatherhood that will be helpful for us, regardless of where you're at. And if we can get it, that it will help us become better fathers if we are fathers. And if we're not fathers, then it'll help us at least to be able to counsel other people in our lives or in the church of what a good father looks like. And besides that, it'll also help us most importantly, with the way that we view our Father in heaven, as that is our primary fatherly relationship. And so, so just as a word to you, hope you be encouraged. Hope you don't write this sermon off thinking, oh, I'm not a father, uh, or I, I uh, don't really have a good father figure in mind, so I'm not going to listen. I encourage you to drink it in deep and think about it. Think about what the Bible has to say for us, what God has to say about himself. And uh, right before we get kicked off, I would like to give a number of disclaimers because uh, I'm I'm about to tell you how to be a good father. I'm about to tell you, uh, give you a sermon that will be preaching about being a good father. And I am a father, but there are some disclaimers I would like to share before we get into it. Uh, Number one is that I am not the best father. Okay, so I'm not speaking from a, a place where I am uh, on top of the mountain talking down to you. Remember that mountain imagery in a second. I often fail, and daily I, I have to confess sin to my wife and to my sons to where uh, I, I realize that if, even if I am attempting to father them in a, a godly way, a good way, then I'm doing it with some sort of mixed motive or I'm doing it wrongly. So I am not the best father. Second disclaimer, I, have, I do not have everything figured out. I have plenty to learn, and uh, my oldest is only five, so I think you can realize I have plenty to learn. Uh, but still, the Word of God instructs us. Disclaimer three, I have no daughters. I have three sons. So the illustrations and examples will probably be boy-heavy this morning. Disclaimer four, and last, I will focus on fathers more than moms, though the image of God requires both. So at the front end, uh, disclaimer for this morning, for this message, fathers are important. They are not all-encompassing important for instructing children in the way that they should go. It takes both mom and dad to rightly portray the image of God. And uh, with that... Hope you are prepared now. Let me, uh, let me begin. One of the things uh, that uh, I think about will be in Deuteronomy starting out, if you want to get there, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, one of the things I routinely think about, maybe it's because I am father, maybe not, I don't know, is uh, I, I routinely think of scenarios that everything could go wrong in. Uh, that's just the way I, I, I don't know. I'm wired that way, whether it's going out to public or at my home, I'm always thinking of what if something went bad? What if this fell apart? What if 
the house caught on fire. And uh, part of that, I'm sure, has to do with growing up with a fireman for dad. Thanks, dad. Um, but uh, it's something I think about. That what's priority number one? What are you going to do first? What's the, uh, what are the entrances and exits to every structure that you encounter? And uh, for me, at home, one of the things that I think about is what would I do if I woke up smelling smoke? And uh, just a word to the wise, you should probably think about that if you haven't. You have a plan of action. But uh, as I do that, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, of course, the kids, right? Because that's priority in the wife. Like, have to make sure the family's safe, and after the family's safe, then you can move on to other things. But I think it's valuable to think about that because it shows what you really cherish, what you value, what you prize. If you had the opportunity to only get one thing out or just a few things out from destruction, what would it be? It would be those things that you care about the most, naturally. And uh, there's, I think, insight for us here for fathers along with that that speaks of a legacy. Whatever you, whatever you value is whatever you're going to leave behind. It's what people are going to know about you. Things that I really value are uh, you know, things like table tennis, which if you don't know what that is, that's also called ping pong uh, by uneducated folk. But the, uh, the point is, it's something I love, so undoubtedly it's something that I actually look forward to passing on to my sons. And only one out of the three have paddles so far, so that's something to fix. But uh, there are things that I love that will get passed on because I love them. And there are things also that I love that I may not want to be passed on that will get passed on because it is a legacy of mine. They know that I, I love certain things, I like certain things, and it will become, for me, a legacy. And I think we all know that. We all realize that, that we have passed down to us from our fathers, from other people, legacies that we receive that were extremely important to them. And so this morning, it's as we think about that, I, I want to offer to you, fathers, an idea, a, uh, a, a key idea, probably I would say the most important idea that comes across in the scriptures about what to leave behind. What is it that fathers should leave? What is the legacy that fathers should have? And so that's the main point for this morning. The fathers should leave behind a scripture-loving legacy. So I hyphenate the word to make it one thing, Scripture-loving legacy. The legacy is loving the Scriptures, and that's what, arguably, we should pass on to our kids and friends and other family members. So that's the main point for today. And today we're not walking through a Bible passage only or a text, block text. We're jumping around a bit, so feel free to follow the screen. If, uh, if you're not too quick on finding stuff in the Bible. But we're going to start in Deuteronomy 5. And what we're going to see is first that leaving a Scripture-loving legacy is a call from God. And here's where we start to get that. Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 27. God is talking. Moses is recapping what God has said and is saying, and he says this right after he gives the Ten Commandments, uh, an apex in Israel's history. They receive the words from God from a, on a mountain. And he says that these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly, the whole host of Israel, at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them in two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Moses is talking about himself. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire. You came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and we still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God, and more we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and yet still lived? Go near and hear all the words our God will say. 
and speak to us all that the Lord God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. Israel says to Moses, we have heard God, we have seen him, and we will obey, we will do it. And what does he hear? What does he see? What does Israel hear and see? They hear initially this command of the Ten Commandments. This is actually the second time we get it. The first time it happens, Moses is on the mountain with God and the people commit spiritual adultery with a golden calf. And so Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, the covenant is broken. And here we have the second giving of the covenant, which is the title of the book, Deuteronomy, the second law. So God gives them the law again in his grace. And then as he's giving the law, the people respond and say, we've seen it. We understand it. We know what you demand of us and we will do it. And not only that, but it seems a little bit uh, fictitious, doesn't it? I mean, we have thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And uh, before this even mentioned trumpets, like what is going on in this place? This is unreal. But this is what happens when God shows up and he speaks. It is a terrifying and a momentous ordeal. And so after this happens, God will speak and then he will, he will take what they have heard and he'll condense it. He'll summarize it down to one saying, one important saying, and that's called the Shema. So let's keep reading in Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your, you, your son, and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that the days of your life may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, right before we get into this, that, that was a lot to read. I know. There was a lot to read, a lot to hear. And, but it's important. It's important because this, this is the word of God to a nation. But as we'll see in a patriarchal society, especially to fathers. And God condenses it down, and he gives us in verse 4 what would happen throughout the ages as the prime saying for Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's it. That is what God wants in a condensed form passed down through the ages among his people. But not only that, there's more instruction to it. And these words, this is what God says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." God says that his word, his instruction, should be preeminent to his people. It should, it should come before them, and not only that, it should go after them. It should involve all of life. His command to them is that it should, it should be so statutory that they see it everywhere in life. The, uh, the reference to being frontlets on your eyes uh, that's something called the phylactery that people still, Orthodox Jews, still wear. A little box that holds what? The Shema in it. The words of God, the scripture. And they tie it on their head and they walk around with it. Always to have it at the front of their mind. To say, we cannot forget this. This is what we have to have. This is what we have to hold on to. This is essential to our identity as a people. And certainly that is still the case today. So we, we get this instruction, this, this instance, this imagery from God to where he comes to his people and says, my word to you must be the most important thing in your life. And here's a condensed form that you can pass it down with. And so it is passed down so much so that when the scribes and Pharisees ask Jesus, what's the point of the law? He can 
instantly nail it. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then qualifying it. And the second, your neighbor is yourself. This is the heart of the Old Testament. So we see here clearly that God is giving us some instruction that to really love the Scripture, to leave a Scripture-loving legacy, it's got to involve His Word. And it's a call. It's a call to do so. And we don't only see this in the Old Testament. Now, at this point, you could say, well, yes, that's important for Judaism, uh, that whole system of religion. That's important for uh, tradition's sake, for nationality, for all those things. But is it the same for Christians? Is it the same for me? And uh, the way to figure that out is to keep reading in the Bible. We have a whole Bible, 66 books to read from, and we see this is true in the Old Testament, but also we're going to see it pop up in the New Testament. First, we see it in the Gospels. We see it in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Maybe you haven't ever thought about Jesus' great commission this way, but it's very similar. Jesus begins, or Matthew begins talking about Jesus. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, mountain again, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all. All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some things to point out about this passage, if you didn't pick them up. One is that this is a mountain. Second is that worship happens to God on this mountain, or rather to Jesus. But then Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth. That sure sounds like deity to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been granted or given to me. So here we have Jesus sitting on top of this mountain as the divine lawgiver who speaks to his people and tells them that they are to go into all the nations. So the scope has expanded now. We're not just talking about one nation, but now all nations. And what are they to do? They are to teach. They are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a number of things going on here, the baptizing and such, but the core to the concept is the idea of teaching, that in order for this thing to pass on, teaching has to be involved. Jesus gives, like God in the Old Testament gave, a call to have a scripture-loving legacy. It has to involve the teaching. It has to have the loving to go along with it, loving for God's commands. But that's not the only place that we see it. If we keep on going, we see it in the Old Testament with the law in Deuteronomy, and we see it in the Gospels in the Great Commission. But to clarify things, and as we see it's getting sharper and sharper and sharper, Paul then will begin talking about how the church is supposed to be ordered in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul will say this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So we're talking about kids here. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Does that sound familiar to you? The commandment again. That's one of the ten commandments that God had just talked about in Deuteronomy 5. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And so he brings it up to, again to say, it is a commandment, but like it was when it was first given, a promise goes along with it, which is very practical in nature. You will not die. So when I tell my sons, do not stick your finger in the light socket, they will not die if they follow that command. Right? There, there's real cash value to the Bible here. Um, so feel free to use that with your own kids. If you do this, you will die. If you, if you don't follow my command, you will die. Maybe, maybe not, depends on what you're talking about, but um, that's the sort of thing that Paul brings back up, is that this is the commandment with a promise. It's a good thing, which ties it back to 
Deuteronomy 5. You know, what is this about? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is God's desire. As he's giving, many, many times as he's giving the law, the first time and the second time, the stipulations that come with it are, if you obey this command, you will have life. You will flourish. You will live. You will succeed. If you disobey this command, you will be destroyed. You will become a byword to the nations. You will become like chaff. You will be wiped away. There will be nothing left of you. And so there is this promise of living long in the land tied to Deuteronomy. But then Paul, after he talks about children and and the ramifications involved for the, the instruction, he says then a little bit more information which qualifies some things for us. We get more clarity as the biblical revelation goes on. Paul then says, Fathers, in verse 4, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm going to dig into this a little bit here in a second, but just on the surface to see, we have three different places in Scripture, three key places in Scripture where God gives us a call. And what we see in Deuteronomy is this is a call for the nation. It's a call for everybody, for the dad, the mom, the kids. Everybody should value Scripture this way, should love it this way, and seek to pass it on. And then later on in the Gospels, we see Jesus gives this to his disciples, all his disciples. That loving Scripture is a part of the great commission. There's teaching involved. Doctrine is the word. But not only that, here we get to a sharper point in Ephesians. And Paul tells us that this job of this call of passing on this love for God's word is something that comes with a few different things. It comes with nourishment. And, the, and that's the word, it's hard to see in English, but when he says, don't provoke your children to anger, which means to crush or to isolate or destroy their life, but bring them up, uh, that's the same word for nourish that Paul just used when talking about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wife as you love your own body. So no, no one hates his own body, but nourishes it. Same word. So the father is to, in this way of taking care of his children and showing them the words of God, he's, he's to nourish them, nourish them, bring them up in, and then he'll say two things, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, discipline is not, discipline doesn't just mean spankings, to say no. And you may object to that. Uh, maybe you think that spankings aren't even involved to it. I certainly do. But discipline, it has more to do with it. It's, it's a way of showing your kids in life that there are consequences to your actions. You give them rules, and then you let them work out those rules and find out what's good and what's bad. It's not purely negative, but it's negative and positive. Your kids get to see in life how things operate. If you, if you do something that's law-breaking, then you will get a repercussion from the law. So you, you nourish them up in that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is the instruction of the Lord. This doesn't mean simply teaching. Teaching is a core idea in it. But along with teaching... It also involves something a little bit more, it, something kind or sweet to it in other ways that the, the word is used in the New Testament. You could say that the, the child must be brought up by the father in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord as to say it's, it's a way of kindly counseling, instruction that has to be involved in it. It's not simply edicts of what to do but involves dialogue. And one of the other big things to point out about Paul's word here, uh, his words, is that this is a, a role, a call, given especially to fathers. 
And as we've seen, this is something that uh, the, the call for disciple-making and loving God's Word is something that is to happen in the entire church. But here, Paul moves down as he's ordering the house and presenting how the house should be ordered. As the, the husband is the head of the wife, uh, now down to, in a similar fashion, that the father is the one who's leading the children. He's the one who is leading in not provoking them to anger. He's the one to step in and say, I think we just need to calm down. We need time out all the way around. He's the one leading in to say that we have to nourish our kids and help them grow. I don't hear a lot of dads talk about nourishing. He's the one to lead, to step in and say that we need to, we need to provide real rules, real boundaries to show the kids how the world actually works so that they don't kill themselves one day or hurt someone else. They can learn how to live wisely in the world and operate correctly. And the father is the one to lead in the instruction to to sit down and have a dialogue and figure out what is actually happening here, to, to pose questions to the kids and help them understand who ultimately the Lord is. This is not the discipline and instruction of the Father. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Father. This is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which means it's not about the Father's, it's about the Lord. The point is to know Him. So we see here three movements, three places where where God gives us a call. That it is a call to leave a legacy. It is a call to leave a scripture-loving legacy. But not only that, we also see, and this is going to be the, the second point, that there is an example for this, or there are examples. And before we get into that, just to stop and, and consider this, dads, that no one else can lead your family like you can. No one else can father your children like you can. No one else can bring them up in the way of the Lord like you can. It's only you. Not to say that other people can't supplement and help. Certainly we see later on in the New Testament that as Paul picks up Timothy and fathers him, that we find that Paul didn't have, or Timothy didn't have a father. Rather, his mother heard the gospel and believed and taught him the scriptures. But majorly what we see is that it is the father's responsibility first to come and teach the children about purpose of scripture, about memorizing scripture, about knowing God through scripture. So I just have to ask you, as I was asking myself this week while studying, do you believe this? Do you feel the weight of it as a father? Is this just a concept that kind of slips past your mind? Or is it something that actually weighs on you? You might even wake up thinking about it at night. God help me. Help me to be this kind of father. But we see a second thing in Scripture, and that is that a Scripture-loving legacy is an example to follow. One of the best things I think that we could do is actually see how this works out, because we can, we can hear this command, this call from God, but actually seeing it worked out is another thing. Sometimes you just have to see something done to be able to do it. And so let me just walk you through five generations very quickly to give you a picture of this. The first generation is going to start with a man named Boaz. If you're familiar with Boaz, Boaz is the righteous man. He's the worthy man in the book of Ruth. And Ruth, who is a righteous woman, even though she's not an Israelite by nationality, she ends up catching him as a husband, and he is, in the book of Ruth, exemplified as a worthy man. That's how he's first introduced to us. And I think you have to ask, why is he a worthy man? You don't see him quoting any scripture. You don't see any explicit scriptures about how he is the, uh, he's a scribe or anything like that. He's not. He's just a businessman. He is a working man in Israel without a formal education, it seems, and 
without any sort of uh, Levitical background. He doesn't, he's not a scribe. He doesn't write down the words of God. But in Ruth, we see that there's no man as competent and as godly as Boaz. Everything he, he does, it's a, a helpful exercise if you ever want to do it, but you can read Ruth and just look at all the different ways that Boaz acts. And everything that he does is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy's command to take after the orphan and the widow, to be kind to his neighbor, to not exclude the foreigner or the alien, all these sorts of things to honor marriage. Boaz is the epitome of a godly man. And so we see, I don't know how it happened with him, if he got it from his father or what, but we see something incredible happen with Boaz. And then as Boaz and Ruth have a son, he passes it on, undoubtedly. Now, this is interesting to me. The next two, we don't really see or hear much of in the scriptures. And the point is, they're not really part of the story. But undoubtedly, Boaz passes on this living love of following God in the scriptures. And so he passes it on to his son, Obed. Now, we know like nothing of Obed, but uh, the name, I think, would warrant some sort of explanation. But he undoubtedly passes it on to his son, who is Jesse. And if you're already getting lost, that's just three generations, Boaz, Obed, and Jesse. But Jesse, we know a little bit about. Jesse was the father of David, King David. And if you know anything about David, you know this, that he was characterized as what? A man after God's own heart. Why? David, unlike almost anybody else in the Old Testament, really cherished the words of God. And, and so he would take the words of God, capture them, and then write about them. And this is one way that he did it. In Psalm 1, we see this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law. The word is Torah. Same word for the Bible, Hebrew Bible. The Torah. On his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. And then he talks about how the wicked are like chaff. You see, David was able to meditate and think on Scripture. He had passed on to him, somehow, a Scripture-loving legacy. And I think you could ask, well, how, how else did David know this? And we, like I said, we don't have a whole lot about his father, Jesse. But what we do have is a little bit of information and you can find it in 1 Chronicles 27.32. It's not going to be up there, but it just tells, that, tells us that David had an uncle whose name was Jonathan. He ends up having a best friend whose name is Jonathan too. But Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor. His job as a counselor was to tutor the princes of Israel, Saul's sons, which is probably how he got the gig with Saul. But as he's teaching and counseling, what qualifies David's uncle is that he is a scribe. Here's a man in David's household, probably, because they lived together. They didn't all have their own houses, who was able to teach David, tutor him in the words of God. David was able to, to probably just by oral authority, hear the words of God go out all day, take care of sheep, and think, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, and make a psalm about it. But he's thinking about Scripture, and he passes this on to his son, Solomon. And we read Solomon to talk about it this way in Proverbs 3, that my son, Solomon is talking to his son as he writes Proverbs, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart Keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. I've memorized this with my son, and it is a joy to have him say it back to me. Sometimes I'll just say, my son, to get his attention, and then he'll say, don't forget my teaching. That's right. Listen to me. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. 
what sort of steadfast love and faithfulness to the covenant. This is Deuteronomy language. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Or again, he talks about it in the next chapter, Proverbs 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Precepts are another word for instruction. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. He said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. We see that David had such an impact on Solomon that when he was an older man, he thought about his childhood, he fondly thought of how his father would sit with him and teach him the words of God. He fondly thought how his father had a scripture-loving legacy. And in the fifth generation here with Solomon, we also see something else, that he does something no one else could do in the history of Israel, and that is he builds a temple. God's word had so invaded his heart that he saw a desire in God's heart, in his word, that all peoples, all nations should worship him. That worship is due to him. And so he, he builds the temple. And as he builds the temple, he sets up two gigantic pillars one on the north side, one on the south side. And as he does that, he names them. And he names the one on the north, or the one on the south, he called Jachin, which is probably not a name you're familiar with. And then on the one on the north, he called Boaz. What's the significance of this? As Solomon names these pillars, he sets up the house of God, this legacy that was supposed to happen for years and years, that God is finally going to be worshipped in the world, in a temple, which is a desire to have him worshipped everywhere. Solomon sees all that's happened, and he says, the Lord has established it, which is what Jachin means, and he says, may be established quickly, which is what Boaz means. And I think that Solomon has to have in mind here, not just quickly, but his great-great-grandfather that Solomon sees the one that has passed on to him this legacy of loving the words of God didn't start with him, didn't start with his dad, but started with his great-great-grandfather at least. You see, God gives us here an example of what this looks like to leave this kind of legacy. And just for yourself, I wonder, as I was thinking about it, the same for you, Have you received a legacy like this? Like, do you know things biblically just because you were taught them growing up? Do you have a worldview that is shaped by the Christian message? You undoubtedly got that from your father. If not from your father, then probably from some other people that were close by. That's something to thank God for. But not only that, another question is, what will you pass on to your great-great-grandson? Will it be the same sort of legacy? Will it be a legacy that one day, even though you don't even know them yet, that they would say, I love the God of the Bible more than anything else in this life. And they would expend themselves for it. It's a question that we can, should consider and take deeply. Now, if you're not feeling horrible enough as a dad yet, then perhaps you've missed the point. But we can't stop here. If you only take this example, if you take this call and you take this example, and all you do with it is you go home and you say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be like that. Some good may come of it. Through the Holy Spirit's sanctification and movement in your life, some good may happen, but that is not the message of the scriptures. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not, here is the example, you go and do the same. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Make yourself into a better person. This is the opposite of the biblical message. And we see as much even from God in Deuteronomy. We'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where God says this, He hears the words which we read. 
that all Israel says, yes, we hear it and we're going to do it. And here's what God says in response. In verse 28, And the Lord heard the words, your words, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people and they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. God affirms it. Yes, it is right that you should follow this. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them all of their, and all of their descendants forever. Do you hear the brokenness in God's voice as he sees what's going to happen? In a moment, and maybe this has happened for you, you've had some sort of religious experience in which you see that, that God is beautiful, he is worthy of being adored, he is worthy of being obeyed, And so you say, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow you. But it rings hollow because you do not have the heart to fulfill what the command says to fulfill. God sees the way his people respond and say, yes, that's right, but they cannot do it. Oh, that they have such a heart. It's almost like God is wishing, isn't it? God doesn't have to wish, but he expresses some sorrow here. Oh, that they had such a heart. Or you could say, oh, that they had such a mind. Always to fear me and keep all my commandments. This is not the message of the Bible that you can see God's example and do it. You can hear his words and obey. Rather, as I experience daily now as a father, I'm constantly saying, don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Did I not say? Yes. Why? Because my son's hearts do not have the ability to change, to obey from the heart. That's only something that Jesus can bring. And we see Jesus talk about this. If you memorized the first five books of the Bible, even the first book of the Bible, you would be no better off if you did not know Jesus than if you had the entire Bible memorized. It's pointless. Jesus brings this up talking to the scribes, the people who had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. It was part of the the rule. You want to be a scribe, you've got to have the first five memorized. You search the scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus comes as the word of God, to his own people. And the crazy thing is, they completely missed it. The people who had memorized it, who knew it, missed it. Because, as God says in Deuteronomy, oh, that this people has such a heart. They don't have it. The amazing thing is that there's a way of passing on a tradition of memorizing and knowing Scripture that completely misses the point. If you just try to follow the biblical example, you will fail. What you need instead is what Jesus says, to see him as the goal of the Bible. And the disciples picked this up, who spent time with him every day. We see it in Luke 24. They're walking on a road with him after he's been resurrected. They don't even know who he is. And they're talking And he says, what are you talking about? And I'm sure they kind of turned to him like, well, we're really talking to you, but if you want to know. And then then he says, uh, they tell him about Jesus, all that's happened in Jerusalem. This man named Jesus who said he was God, he's, he's been crucified and dead. And then he says this to them. And he said to them, verse 25, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart, the heart is the main issue again, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, another way of saying Moses is to say the Torah, the first five books, including Deuteronomy. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The response is what is amazing here. And after they hear this and they walk with him, in verse 32, they say, Did not our hearts burn within us 
while he walked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us for the first time in their lives. This is, these are men who spent days with Jesus. For the first time in their lives, they saw the point, the point of the Bible is not about them. It's not about just trying. Rather, it is about seeing the one who gave his life for them that they could live. It's about seeing the one who kept all the laws so that they could be seen as not law breakers, but law keepers. This is a message we see throughout the New Testament and it's something the author of Hebrews also talks about, this scripture-loving legacy. It can be done this way, Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant, God says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, which is the command in Deuteronomy, just teach your neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. How is it that God can do that? The only way he can do it is by having the lawbreaker be not us, but the Son. And the point is so, so simple that we may miss it, but this is the true picture of a father. The Father in heaven, the heavenly Father, has sent us his word to live by. Why should you provide a scripture-loving legacy to your kids and your family after you? This is what the Father does for us. He sends us the word. And by him, we have ability to love his word. Paul will, I think, capture it this way in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, the Heavenly Father knows that his children are illegitimate children because of sin. He knows that. He knows that they will be cut off from him forever. And so he gives the son so that we might be adopted. And so this morning I ask you, do you love Jesus? Do you see Jesus this way? Do you see him as the end, the goal of all the scriptures? Or do you see him just as a good teacher that did some good things? You see, as when I think about what to grab in case my house burns down, I have a couple things that are really important to me. One is going to be some Bibles I have, and the other for me are my journals. I have years worth of journals that I've kept just to help grow closer to God. And one day I want my kids to read them, probably after I'm gone because there's stuff in there I want them to know after I'm gone. But I want to pass that on to them. I want them to have this view that Dad loved Jesus so much. He loved the scriptures and he left for us a legacy to that end. And so I ask the same for you. What is it that you're going to leave behind? If you could pass only one thing on to your kids, what would it be? as a legacy. That's one thing to think about. But another thing that I think is more realistic for you is this. If you die today, what is the legacy that you would leave behind? Not that you want to leave behind, but that you actually would leave behind. So God calls us, fathers, to leave behind a legacy of loving Scripture. And not in and of itself, not to hoist ourselves up to say that we are good moral people, but so that we can point to Jesus who is for us our righteousness, who gives us life. And quickly, just for us as a local church, can you imagine what that would be like if we did that? I think we're doing some of it now with our, with our 
gospel curriculum for the kids. Every week they go through a curriculum called the Gospel Project in which the view is to see Jesus in every lesson so that they grow up seeing that. But what would it be like if all of us, all the dads here, serve in the kids' ministry, or at least most of them, and they have this view in mind that whether it's just on Sunday or later on in the week, that you're thinking about, how can I teach my kids about this Jesus? How can I leave this legacy of Scripture for them? Are they, when I'm gone, are they going to have any bit of biblical knowledge by which to know God or to know Jesus? If we could grasp, if we could catch hold of that kind of vision, that kind of legacy, in 10, 15 years, this place would be, this place would be godly. Magnolia would be changed. Woodlands would be changed. Conroe would be changed. And it's possible by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word passed on to us even now, this morning. God, we confess that we are short of being able to fill your commands. God, we ask that you would do it in your power through your son's sacrifice. God, I ask that you would encourage the faint-hearted today that if they're hearing this and are crushed by the weight of it and feel like they are doing all that they can and can't do anymore, God, that you would give them grace. There's so much grace to be had. God, for the, for the father that is hardened and thinks that this doesn't have to do with him or that he's doing as good a job as he ever can, Father, would you provide vision to show that there's so much more to be had. God, for so many of, of us, fathers, myself, as I go there sometimes to get complacent and, and not hold in my mind a vision that you have so much to pass on to, so many lives to impact for your name. God, I ask that you would provide vision for fathers to be able to see that this life is not all there is, but that we exist for you. We ask this in your name. Amen.